Welcome back to the Renegade Ventures podcast. Today, we are talking about different types of investing and specifically the differences between angel, venture, mergers and acquisitions, and small business acquisition investing. This episode does get a little technical, and for people new to the business capital world, we want to apologize for when the language is jargon. We are launching a word of the week on our social media and adding a glossary to the website. We will do our best to include links in the show notes. And as always, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask questions. For decades, women have been climbing the corporate ladder. We have been asking for seats at the table. When we really should, just buy the whole damn company. Welcome to the Renegade Ventures podcast, where we uncover a different path to business ownership. We talk about the ins and outs of acquiring and growing businesses as assets. These assets grow our wealth and our communities, and it's a lot more accessible than you may think. I am your host, Ellie Puckett, and for 10 years, I was the poster child for entrepreneurship. Now I'm a trained business broker. I help people buy and sell businesses. I'm working on my own acquisitions, and I am passionately advocating for more women to become acquisition entrepreneurs. This path isn't easy, but it is worth it. And for those of you who choose it, that is what makes you a renegade. Today's guest is Elizabeth Roundsaval, an angel investor, startup coach, and mentor. She is a partner at Roundsaval Investments, a family office vehicle and the VP of industrial real estate firm, DRP. Her background spans many different industries and types of investing. One of my favorite things about Elizabeth, though, is how much she gives back to the community. She was even named Mentor of the Year in 2017. She serves on the Community Foundation of Louisville Board, and she has her MBA from MIT and her undergrad from Yale. Elizabeth is wicked smart, and is a fantastic human, and I think that you all are really going to enjoy the conversation we're about to have. When I think about Elizabeth, I think she embodies the concept of when women have more money, they use it to give back to their communities. So thank you for being on the show. I'm so excited to have you because we've been friends for a long time, and you have been there for me through different parts of my Mm -hmm. career and teaching me even about what angel and venture investing looks like, and even a part of the original like idea around Renegade Ventures And so I'm really excited to have this conversation about Mm -hmm. capital because a lot of women, I think a lot of people hear these terms like angel and venture. And, and when they go to start a business, they're like, I need money. I need venture capital. How do I get me some of that? And I think that we need to do some demystifying Mm -hmm. around what is angel investing? What is venture investing? What is a family office or private equity? There's so many different types of investing. So let's just kind of jump right in and talk about your background and how it's spanned a lot of different types before we go into explaining each one. So I spent about 10 years at a venture capital firm here in Louisville called Chrysalis Ventures, which at the time was Kentucky's largest Series A firm, and for all I know may still be. Series A meaning very early stage venture capital, so growth you know, there's probably a product in the market. There's, you know, you have some customers, you might need to raise five or 10 million to sort of take yourself to the next level. You are way past what we call seed stage and you're nowhere near what we call IPO stage. So that's sort of what a series A Mm -hmm. firm is. If you say that in an investing world, everyone goes, oh yes, of course, series A firm. But (laughs) 
for, for people who don't know, that's what that means. After leaving there, I went, and now I'm sort of with sort of my family doing family business, family office things. And because of that experience at Chrysalis, we are sort of doing a little bit more angel and venture investing than we might have had I not had that background. And so what we do now, you know, we have real estate, we have stocks, bonds, all, all that kind of thing, but we do have a narrow, I don't want to call it a fund because a fund means I've raised money from other people that I'm managing and we're not, it's just our own. Um, but it's sort of a pool of capital that we've been making smaller seed stage kind of angel investments out of an angel, meaning it, it's, you're not an institution. You haven't raised money. It's your own money that you're putting to work. And because we're angels, we don't have a specific thesis we have to follow. We don't have a specific set of industries that we have said we're going to look at. We have, you know, our previous experiences to draw on and what we're familiar with. So for example, my brother came up through consumer marketing and knows a lot more about sort of direct to consumer businesses or consumer packaged good businesses. That's never been my background. Chrysalis was much more of a business to business software kind of a shop. So that is basically my background. I know enough about the private equity end of things, sort of much, much later stage to get very dangerous because those are the sorts of companies that would come in and either buy or invest in some of the companies that we had at Chrysalis, but I've never actually been the investor that late stage. Right. So. Yeah. But I think that I've never been that investor either. And so, but we interact with these kinds of mm -hmm. different types of investors. And one of my experiences in the startup world was that people didn't necessarily understand the difference between angel and venture capital mm -hmm. and when you were able to raise that kind of capital. So let's just dive a, a little step deeper into angel capital versus venture capital. Mm -hmm. So when I think of it, and I, you will get a slightly different dis description depending on who you ask, but when I think of it, angels are much earlier stage. They're likely to be you know, experienced in that business. Maybe they've run a business like that or they've sold a business like that. Um, they're called angels because it's such an early stage of investment. It's almost more of a, out of the goodness of your own heart, you're giving this money because God only knows what's going to happen to it, right? right? The risk level at angel is really, really high. And so it tends to be more one-on-one -on -one individual people that really get you and believe in your mission, right? Mm -hmm. Venture... I say institutional because, or I said institutional before, because that it, venture firms have gone and raised money from investors. And those can be anything from people like angels, like I've invested in funds, all the way up to pension plans and fund of funds and inst like big, big money that's trying to put all sorts of fund money to work in all kinds of different places. And, and venture fills a very specific risk profile for that huge portfolio. It tends to be bigger. You tend to have a little bit more money under management. And I think they're a little bit more systematic about how they go about things and what they look at. You will have people that say, oh, well, right now AI is the big thing. So there's a, a bunch of different funds that are raising right now specifically to go look at AI. And if mm -hmm. you invest in those funds, you know that that's what you're going to get. And typically they will say, well, we are earlier stage or we are later stage. You know, so you sort of know what kind of risk level you're going to get also but they tend to market themselves as investment vehicles. It's much less of a, it's much more of a financial decision. I think on the angel investment side, it's much more of a, a mission or a heart investment. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So I think of angels as often being like people who are making those yeah. decisions and it's those people's money. So you can even get into, we talked a little bit about funds. And yeah. so there are angel funds where it's a bunch of people who've put their money together to make investments, but those still are 
earlier staged investments. They are the people who put their money in making decisions about right. where that money goes. Whereas when you get into venture, often you are dealing with fund managers who are paid W-2 employees yep. that, and financial analysts. The people gave their money over to these people to manage their money and they're pretty much out of it. Right. And that's a, that's a really good distinction because in angel groups, it is much more of a collective decision-making. You know, you'll get to see a couple of companies come through and pitch every month and then you are much more involved in the decision making around should we invest in this and the the people who are making those decisions are usually volunteers mm -hmm. that are sort of part of that group that have sort of said you know i i am willing to go do diligence on this or issue a term sheet whereas in venture you're seeing a lot more deals right i mean at chrysalis at its peak i think we were seeing over a thousand to 1200 deals a year some of them were total crackpots right mm -hmm. mind you but it was just a lot more volume. We had a lot more systems to to deal with it. We had a whole financial back office with angels. Everyone sort of has their own way of, you know, handling their business, their money. And it's, it's much more of a sort of grassroots kind of a thing. I think that with both angel is like the beginning and then you move into venture, right? Like that's different stages. Generally some, speaking. Yeah. And sometimes it gets a little blended and here or there there's, but for the most part, these types of investment are into what we might call like startups or even in the technology startups. And so there's a world where we are talking about these businesses. Whole goal is to grow scale and sell. Yes. Grow scale and exit in some way, shape or form. And that exit looks a lot different than small businesses. And mm -hmm. so some people who have small businesses want to get investment, to get going. And what they don't realize is that the vision for that business isn't necessarily how big can I make this? How fast can I make this? How quickly can I exit this? Every time I have started or looked at buying a business, I call Dave Etkin and the team at the Louisville Small Business Development Center. There are SBDC offices across the country and they exist to help you start and grow your business. Best of all, most of their services are completely free. If you need help starting a business, filing an LLC, making financial projections, writing a business plan, prepping for an SBA loan, or you just need some business advice, contact the Small Business Development Center. The contact information is in our show notes. That is a great, great point. And one of the things that I, I will often sit down and sort of talk to people about is, are you sure you want to raise money? Right. Because once, once you have raised money, then you have investor expectations to meet, to meet, you have started a clock, right? Because your investors are going to want to return at some point. You have all of a sudden different people on your board that are sort of giving you advice and telling you what to do. It is a way to finance high growth, but it also gives you certain handcuffs mm -hmm. that if you bootstrap it alone, you don't have, you have much more control of your destiny. You just don't have as big of a sort of checkbook, right? Right. To, to, to grow. So it is not for everybody. Right. And I also think that most people in the angel and venture world from a, the founder side, the business owner side are within the first five years of that mm -hmm. idea or that business. I mean, they might've started it off a little bit, but once you are kind of later stage business, we actually move into a different version of investing. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, when I first left Chrysalis and I was doing more real estate work, it was kind of shocking to me because on the, on the startup side, you know, you have a lot of 
unknowns about what the future is going to hold, right? You, you've got a brand new product. You have maybe, maybe you have to teach the market that it needs your product in real estate. It's very predictable. Like you have a signed lease to the penny of what you're going to charge in rent, for example, and banks will lend to you. It's kind of a miracle, right? right. Like in, in startup land, nobody's going to lend to you because you're not profitable. You can't necessarily put a credible five-year projection together. So it's, it's very, very different. And whether they believe it or not, their software is not an asset yet. <laughs> it is not a loanable asset. Right. Um, right. Cause you know, a bank wants something that they can actually use as collateral and then sell to someone. Right. And that's just too mushy of a Right. Of a thing. And so one of the, the big purpose behind Renegade Ventures is talking about how we grow our wealth and grow our assets mm-hmm. and businesses can be assets right. and we can buy and sell businesses as assets. And there's several different asset classes, right? Like mm-hmm. there is real estate, there's stocks and bonds yeah. and other types of investing. And then there is investing in startups as we move later down. So like venture and angel are early stage companies that have a mindset for grow, sell, exit. And as we move down the the chain to small businesses and or more established businesses, can they talk a little bit about risk profile in investing? So like talk a little bit about when you're developing a portfolio Mm -hmm. of investments, how you are kind of sprinkling in a little bit of all of it because these different things have different levels of risk. Yeah. And so where each kind of fall in that risk profile? You know, that's a really interesting question because you're, you're kind of assuming that we've put a portfolio together in a specifically designed way. And that's <laughs> not always what happens, right? Okay. You know, you see certain deals come to you and you say, okay, well, do I want to write a check for this on a one-off, one-on-one, one-on-one basis? And I think if you are a startup investor, either you are you have some experience with another business that might be more mature that's throwing off cash or maybe that you have sold and that's what you're using to invest in startups, right? But I don't know that you necessarily are going to say, I want a portfolio of things. I, I, I don't know that that's how I would sort of characterize it. Well, but if I think about your family office, yeah. you're not only invested in startups. No, that's true. So like yeah. talk a little bit about that aspect. Okay. Yeah. So most people who are investing in startups aren't only investing right. in startups. Right. So the way that we think about it is, and, and this might be some of the Yale, the Yale stuff talking because Yale has a very famous endowment management, right? And, you know, it's sort of a certain amount, you know, you, you hear about like when you're in putting your IRA together or something, you know, how much stocks, how much bonds, you know, 60, 40, 50, 50 or something like that. When you get into sort of larger pools of money, if you want to start getting towards what the Yale Harvard models are, and that's a tremendously ridiculous amount of money. Like it's just not for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So to even try to sort of emulate that at a low level is a little silly. The way that we think about it is, you know, there's a certain amount in stocks, there's an increasingly lower amount in bonds because bonds have just, bonds are a funny thing right now. And then we have sort of a slice of high risk investments. And I want to say for us, that's like 10% of the whole portfolio. And that's usually sort of 10 to 15% in sort of the classic endowment model. And I'm using finger quotes for those of you that can't see it. And then, I mean, honestly, if once you start getting into like the real high net worth people, some of them have like a certain that they certain amount that they set aside for art. Right. And that's, that's not what we do. Like that's, that's it's a whole nother level of collection and investment. But right, there's different, you're putting aside 10 to 15% for high risk, like yeah. startup investment, which is basically the fun money part. So for people who don't have fun, fun money, money yet, startup and angel investing maybe isn't the best place to start. Exactly. 
And so that's a really, really, really good point because it is incredibly risky. I mean, even at the sort of series A level where there's been a lot that's been de-risked from sort of early angel stage, you know, at, at series A stage, you might have, you know, like I said, you've, you've developed a product, you've got customers, you've, you've been marketing, you have employees, you have an office, like all these things that you may not have as a, as a flat startup. Even then the failure rate, I mean, we always used to joke that if you make 10 investments, five of them are just going to be complete zeros. Right. right. And so anyone, you have to believe that any one investment is going to return 10 times its money to make sure that you have maybe one that's going to make sure that you actually do return some of like that you haven't just lost all of it. Right. You have to have enough super high risk investments in a way that you believe that they're going to at least return 10 X to cover the fact that most of them are going to yeah. return zero. Right. Most of your startup investments are going to be complete duds. And the one you're hoping is at least returning it's money back to you. Right. And then you're hoping for one that kind of makes up for all the others. Right. But it, it really is a lot of unknowns and you have to, you have to sort of believe, you know, could I see this investment being that one? And if you don't see a way, you're like, this is not really going to fit because I, I need to make sure that I'm going to have that because the failure rate is so high. Right. And so one of the things that blew my mind when I was in the startup world and in that angel world and knowing that the, that people that did angel investing have these other investments I knew conceptually how risky startups were, right? And I was helping people start businesses and, and putting them on the raise angel and venture track, trail, right. track and helping people with their pitch decks and whatnot. Yeah. And I knew conceptually just how risky they were, but it wasn't until working in a handful of startups that were funded mm. that still failed that it just became more and more real. Yeah. And then I came across this stat where you know, it's estimated that it's like as much as 90%, if not more of startups fail, mm. but 98% of acquisitions succeed. There is uh -huh. only a 2% default rate. And so when we're looking at wealth builders or how do you grow, grow your wealth or how do you, you know, build a future to where you have fun money to invest in startups that you care about, there's actually got to be a way that you kind of work up to that amount of money and how do you de-risk mm -hmm. on your pathway? Yeah. And so that's why when I realized that you could buy an existing entity that had cash flow mm -hmm. and that had assets, you could buy that and continue to build that and you could get a bank loan because it had assets. I know. Miracle, right? Miracle, right? <laughs> then you weren't dealing with, you know, you can use investors and there are lots of investors. We're going to get into that here in a second that invest in later stage businesses and, or are in acquisition portfolios or whatnot, but you can get a bank loan. You're not necessarily dealing with the drawbacks of working with investors, but you're also de-risking that for yourself. Yeah. And many more of those succeed. And so I feel like it can be a really good pathway for someone who is building their wealth to make, and you have some money to make strategic investments outside of the startup world, but make them into the small business, mm -hmm. service-based business, even growing business realm, but more on what would be considered like acquisitions. So I want to transition us to like not full-blown private equity, but I want to talk a little bit about private equity or mergers and acquisitions and investing in lower middle market. So before mm -hmm. I let, like hand that off to you. <laughs> Gee, Ellie, what's lower middle market? Yes. So I actually was at a 
thing with a bunch of investment bankers yesterday. And there was like almost a full-blown argument over what is lower middle market. <laughs> so in my world, we're just going to go ahead and define lower middle market as investments between 10 million and 50 million. But I know apparently it goes all the way up to 100 million. Somebody said that middle market went to a billion. So there's a lot of argument over what yeah. that is. For the sake of our conversation, let's talk about what private equity is, what family offices invest in, mm -hmm. and investing in businesses in our communities that are maybe considered lower middle market. They're going to, they do, you know, several million dollars in revenue every year but they're still considered small businesses. Well, and it's, especially if you're talking about acquisitions, they're, they're probably more stable. They might not be as high growth, right? But they're at least de-risked and they're successful already. One of the differences to me when I think about sort of venture versus sort of direct acquisition is, do you want to run a business, right? Do you, or how passive or active do you want to be? Because with venture or angel, you're writing a check and then, you know, maybe you- Good luck, of, kids. Yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, you- the bigger the firm, the more they're likely to sort of put their finger on the scale and, you know, be on the board and, you know, but you're still not day to day in it. And with acquisitions, you have to be really confident in management. I think in both, you really have to be confident in management. But if you're talking about the sort of thing where you have a founder who wants to retire and, you know, that's where all the wisdom is in the business, you know, you have to sort of think about, all right, well, if I'm buying it from this retiring founder, who's going to run the, you know, so mm -hmm. it's a little different from that perspective, I think. So Rounds of All Investments is a family office, mm -hmm. and I know that there's some debate even what that is. So can you just tell us a little bit about what is a family office exactly? A family office to me is a platform that, I mean, clearly it's, it's a family, so it's a, it's a collection of individuals, and there's either a pool of money that you're managing together, or there's enough it, you know, each of the individual family members has investable assets that are worth enough to sort of consider them as one platform almost. And so for us, that is, we have a little office, we have, you know, someone who helps manage our money. It's kind of professionalizing your own financial wealth management, wealth management. Yeah. It's like it, the goal to some extent, like part of why we do what we're doing is we want to like, for me and my husband, we want to create and it might not be family office generational wealth, but it is like we want to create generational wealth that stays alive. And yeah. part of the goal of a family office is to continue this yes. uh, ability for generations to come so that your grandchildren's grandchildren still have this legacy. Yeah, there's a lot of experience in trust and estate law and sort of help helping, you know, are you if it if there is a business that's involved, are you helping develop the next generation I mean, every family business is different. Every family office is different. There are ginormous ones and, you know, we are not a particularly big one. But I think that one thing that, and the reason why we're even having this conversation in the first place is, in my experience in that startup land, is that investors like you, I've said this already, but have investments and in other things. And it's sometimes hard to see behind the curtain of how this works. And so one reason why we're having this conversation is because you have been very good at bringing other people along and helping other women kind of get more strategic in the way in which that money, you, how that, how your all's money serves the community and how it serves other people. Mm -hmm. And, and so how do you open the door behind that curtain? And we actually had a conversation with Nikki Lanier about 
you know, the issues on racial equity and oh, yeah. wealth. Yeah. And so, you know, we're going from one spectrum to the other right now at the moment. And so it's just like how, but we have to have all of these conversations so that everyone can be a part of what we build the next. Right. Yeah. And I will say over the past 10 years, we'll say 10, 15 years since I sort of got into the investment industry, there has been so much more attention, especially in the, maybe the last five about, you know, looking for under-resourced entrepreneurs, in particular women, in particular people of color, in particular people who would never have been able to go, like, pitch to a, a room full of, you know, rich white guys. You know, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of new funds that have sprung up to sort of support them. There's a lot of outreach. I mean, UofL has a whole health equity center that's really focused on supporting businesses that are working on health equity, but also supporting, you know, entrepreneurs who have been struggling sort of with inequitable circumstances. When I started my journey to buy a business, I quickly realized not all business brokers are created equal. That's why I chose to partner with Murphy Business Sales. Murphy has 150 offices across the country. Their deal size and close rate is significantly higher than the national average. But most importantly, the staff was trained, professional, friendly, and they didn't flinch when I was seven months pregnant. If you're looking to buy or sell a business, Murphy is here to guide you through the process. You can go to murphybusiness.com and make sure that you mention Ellie Puckett and Renegade Ventures Podcast. So, all right. So we have this thing called family offices and then we have, we can go actually into some people don't have the enough money that they're investing through family offices, but they have quite a bit of wealth. And so they might be doing some angel investing, but they might also be investing in a different type of fund. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I didn't know, there's lots of things that I didn't know in the startup world, but I didn't fully understand how there was funds for mergers and acquisitions and like acquiring businesses. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about private equity. Mm -hmm. Can you define that for us? So private equity as a term actually encompasses venture capital, okay. right? So, but when we talk about private equity specifically, we mean sort of much later stage than, than venture capital and specifically traditionally the types of investments that are levered. In other words, you have borrowed a bunch of money to go buy a business. And so in the venture world, you might be selling, you know, your business off to some private equity firm. It's sort of the, the, the next logical step in a high growth company Typically, the way that private equity works, because it's later stage and because there's debt involved, it's much more quantitative spreadsheet based. You're really trying to make sure that you understand how tweaks in the model are going to affect your ability to pay back your debt. So it's, it's much more financial engineering in a way. You know, the, the business has been going for years at this point. You know, it's just it's a different way of financing the business and, and sort of cashing up previous investors and and the, the idea is that the business throws off enough cash to, to pay off the debt. So you can actually not have a lot of money, take out a loan to buy a business, have the business pay the loan down. And that's a very, very classic sort of what we call leveraged buyout model. So right. LBO being one of the types of deals that PE does. And so that is something that where I'm encouraging individuals to do, but they would have to, you know, most likely work yeah. the business. But there are other people who are doing that. And I recently met one and they have probably about 10 what would be considered like small to medium sized businesses in the region that they've invested in. And they are mostly in like 
manufacturing mm-hmm. and some other verticals, one technology company, but it's much, much later stage. And what they do is they have bought portions and or all of these companies mm-hmm. and they are kind of managing them. But really that just means that they meet kind of regularly with the management team. They're mostly absentee mm-hmm. owners yeah. of this, these businesses. So my point is, is that most of the time when we're talking about acquisition, we are talking about you going and buying from the, this podcast's standpoint, mm-hmm. you going and buying a small business with a bank loan. There are groups of people who go and buy businesses and they are either in strategic investor land, which means like mm-hmm. they keep buying the same style of business. I have one right now that is buying daycares. Yeah. They buy daycares and they run daycares. We call and, that a roll up basically. Cause you're just sort of finding all of the little guys and rolling them up into one big company. And, right. And you're kind of giving the same processes and systems to all these daycares. Yeah. And then we have some people who do kind of like lower private equity where they've got a little fund or they have a bunch of people that pull their money together and they make some acquisitions either in whole or in part of businesses. And then they kind of help the management team. They might offer some level of services. They might have a set of lawyers or Mm -hmm. they might handle all of the businesses accounting. There might be some level of shared services amongst their multiple acquisitions. And so this is kind of like lower private equity. And then I've now come across a group that does like true middle market private equity, which is like, they don't even start until like a hundred million and they're making much larger strategic acquisitions that are more spreadsheet based. They are more understanding their investment profile. Yeah. Yep. How do we help people who are just entering this world? I mean, the, the, the amount of conversation we're having right now that is just so heavily technical mm-hmm. and that is so filled with jargon. Like we're, me and you are trying our very best to not have the, this jargon and we're going to define as much as we can in the show notes, but someone's just like listening to this and they're like, I've never interacted with any of these types yep. before. How do we help average people get into this world and start learning about it and make it more accessible? Well, I think you listen to this podcast. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, I think one of the reasons that I sort of do the community outreach that I do is to sort of increase the amount of capital that's available for investment and to to help people understand that this is something that can be done. Now, angel investing is incredibly risky. So the idea of, of sort of small business acquisition is something that I think is much more palatable if you're sort of, you know, I have sold my house. What do I do with this money? Right. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've downsized and, you know, I, I could, I could put it in an index fund. Right. But that's going to do a certain, or I've inherited some money, but we're talking 50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah. With acquisitions, especially with a bank loan, like you can make it, it's like, it's like a, any, a mortgage for any house, right? Like you can take $50,000 and buy a $400,000 house. Like you can take $50,000 and buy a $400,000 business, right? right? It's this, it's the same thing. It's just, people don't know that. Yeah. And so my, my question is, my next question is really about how do we bring other people along this ride, mm-hmm. right? Like we want to see more women, more people of color, be successful, create generational wealth, access some of these different types of capital. And as someone who's been around it, kind of tell us what, what, what we can do to either grow or how we, you know, what do you kind of see as ways that we can advance the ultimate goal forward? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is seeing that it is possible, right? Like you didn't, 
you didn't see a lot of women in medical school until you started seeing a few that had gotten through and they were like, yes, it is actually possible to be a woman doctor. And then like you started seeing actually people being like, yes, I can actually be a woman doctor. Right. And aren't we like graduating as many, if not more women doctors? Right. Now? Yeah. So I think a storytelling around the successes that we do have, right. Bringing people together for education. It's not something that anyone sort of dreams that they can do. Like you, you hear about like you build your business, blah, blah, blah. But no one ever thinks like, oh, I could actually buy one. Mm -hmm. Like, there are businesses that, that people want to sell for various reasons, right? Often it's because they want to retire and, you know, Billy doesn't want to take over the auto parts company or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? But people will sell businesses for a whole bunch of reasons. And, you know, how do we get more buyers in the room? Make sure that people know that this is out there. Right. And then from an investing standpoint, making sure that we're making, you know, identifying our level of amount of risk mm -hmm. and and diversifying that, those assets. So I do want to take a second and touch on real estate. So it's almost like startups versus acquisitions versus real estate. Yeah. Like it's, we, yeah, it's from, a whole range, right? Like we have these different types of businesses. So just for a second, kind of touch on your all's real estate firm, your investing and your kind of thoughts or theories around investing in real estate versus acquisition versus startup? So the real estate firm, for various reasons, it's, it's a whole separate entity than sort of the Rounceville Investments Fund, we'll say. We sort of think of them as two different pockets in the same pair of pants. But the real estate firm existed, my grandfather started it, you know, in the late 30s kind of thing. So I'm a third generation, you know, part owner of this business. It's gone through several generations of iterations of what we do. But at this point, it is, we own a bunch of warehouses and we have tenants and we collect rent and, you know, we mow the lawn and we make sure that the roofs are always fixed and we make sure that the tenants are always happy. And your, most of your properties are industrial. Your, oh yeah. Your yeah. We're in, we're in warehouses, which yeah. is, I think the safest place to be in real estate right now. Cause if you're in offices, you're probably getting a drinking problem right now. But the wonderful thing about real estate is that it is a, a hard asset that banks will lend against B it is very predictable See, it's kind of inflation resistant, right? Because you can always just continue to raise the rent. So it's not like, like if I have $100 now, $100 10 years from now will not buy as much. But if I have a $100 building 10 years from now, that building will be worth a lot more, right? Mm -hmm. And I can charge a lot more. So it's, people use it as sort of a fixed income replacement, sometimes a inflation hedge, but it is a big illiquid asset. And what I mean by illiquid is I might own a $10 million building but I might not be able to come up with $10,000 to paint it, right? Just because of it's all already sunk into that building, right? right? It's not like I can sell part of it just to, you know, raise a little cash. One thing I want to point out is that you said that you and your brother bought into this third generation family mm -hmm. business. Yep. And so I don't think that some people realize that often children are buying in to their family businesses. Yeah. You are actually having to take a loan and, yeah, and buy into that business. I even have recently met with another guy who bought his business at like more than market rate probably from his dad and mm -hmm. had to take out a loan. And I know that that's not always true, but this is might be something that people don't necessarily right. know. You, I think people sort of think of it as, oh, you know, you're gifted shares at birth and you automatically own this business, but, but you don't. And I think in our case, my grandfather insisted that his sons buy the business from him and they did. And so when it was time for my dad to sort of say, well, you know, your, your, your uncle is ready to sell out. Do you guys want to buy in it? And you would inherit it, right? So like, can you tell us why you're buying in? That is a really great question. And this is, 
one of the dynamics of families and businesses and family offices is how you think about some of these multi-generational things. I think initially I was like, well, why don't you just give it to us? Right. But I also think that my dad is, you know, older boomer and is sort of wants to make sure that we have our own skin in the game really. And so we, we, we thought about it as we would any other investment. You know, we looked at financials and we looked at, you know, sort of, we looked at the business. Like, is this a business that you would want to buy into even if your dad didn't already own it? So some people do inherit and some people do yeah. pass it off yeah. and then some people do buy in. Every family is different. And one of the fascinating things about talking to other people in family businesses is just how different people have handled this depending on, again, family dynamics, you know, what, what liquid assets do you already have? Can you borrow to, to do this? It, it, it's all different. Yeah. One of the things that we said, you said one time has been something that I've been using a lot, which is when you were going to buy this business, which is a big portfolio of real estate, but it is a business. It mm -hmm. is a entity that you bought into that getting to the closing table was actually kind of hard <laughs> and you were buying from your own family. Yeah. And so talk, can you just take a minute to talk about getting to that closing table? And I think your quote to me was like, you didn't go with option A or B, you went with 5C3. Oh, yeah, yeah. This goes back to the one pair of pants, two pockets analysis sort of example that I gave. Because, well, the first, the first thought was, well, can't our investment vehicle just buy the real estate? That seems incredibly reasonable. Mm -hmm. Well, we had a whole bunch of attorneys look at it and they said, well, because you are a you know, closely held sole proprietorship, S-corp, blah, 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 blah. But you can't do that because it, then it's a Section 1329 deemed liquidation Ooh. event and it would trigger capital gains and nobody wants to pay taxes if they don't have to pay taxes. And so that we had to sort of throw that out. And then we went through a bunch of different structures of how to do it. You know, should we directly buy the shares that my uncle was selling? Should we, you know, just, so by the time we got to option five, then we sort of had two different ways. I can't remember specifically what option 5A versus 5B versus 5C. And then 5C looked pretty good. We came up with option six and option seven and they didn't work. So we're like, fine, fine, option 5B. And so it became this incredibly complicated transaction where my brother and I borrowed money. We invested in the business. The business redeemed the shares that my uncle had sold back to the businesses. My father lent the business money to do that. We partially paid back my dad and then we raised more bank money. Like it was crazy. Last summer was like we paid a lot of attorney's fees and I read a lot of really, really long legal documents. It was but complicated. I, th I think the point is, is that you all were going to buy this business mm -hmm. and you found a way. And, and I think that there is a lot of legal there that sometimes people don't feel like they have access to the knowledge or the legal fees. Right. Yeah. And so like, how do we begin to educate or help people understand like best ways to tax shelter and best ways to yeah. grow through it. But ultimately in the acquisition game, the hard part is there's a billion different options. Yeah. And the good part is there's, there's a billion a different options. And so it's like, if you're willing to get creative and to really dive in and really learn all the different ways and all the different platforms, or maybe you can find sort of a strategic investor that comes alongside of you and you have to work really hard. This is not an easy game. But there are ways to get it done if you're really, really determined. Yeah. And I think one of the, that was one of the really interesting things that I first learned when I got to the venture firm is every term sheet is different. Every deal is different. You can basically write a purchase agreement to say anything you want it to say. Mm -hmm. And I worked with an investor at Chrysalis who always said, you know, 
people get hung up on valuation. How much is my business worth? Well, I'll give you any valuation you want. Let me set the rest of the terms. Mm-hmm. And you may not know how to, and that's sort of what lawyers can be for, or, you know, as you mentioned, people who have done these, done it before, but the sort of the blank white space of, if you want to get something done, you can generally do it. You can, you can figure out a way to shape it in or to write it or to, you know, it just, it, it usually takes iterations or negotiations right. or understanding tax consequences or understanding, you know, leverage limits and things like that. So. Back to startups versus small businesses or mm-hmm. revenue generating businesses. <laughs> Help people understand where valuations come from in startup land. Cause you, all you hear is these, like you get to see the headline where it's like, so-and-so sold for $6 billion or you come across startups that haven't made a dime, but are somehow have a valuation of $5 million. Mm-hmm. And then you're a small business owner and you come to a business broker and tell me, ask me how much your business is worth. And I say, well, it's worth two times your EBITDA, right? which is basically two times whatever your net profit is. And so like what help people understand why those two things are so crazy different. And they are crazy different. And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of long-term earnings potential, long-term growth potential. If you are a startup and you think someday I'm going to be worth a billion dollars and you, you can say like, here's the tech I have and here's the market I'm capturing and da, 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 then people will be much more willing to buy in, you know, at 20 million, at 50 million, because they think, well, it's going to be worth a billion, right? In acquisitions, you may not have that level of sort of headroom where you can grow that much, right? Mm-hmm. So you really are just focused on the earnings, especially if it's been around for a while. What are the run rate earnings, mm-hmm. Right. You can sort of say, well, maybe I'll buy on future EBITDA, right? But, you know. That's still taken in. If you're buying on future EBITDA, it's still weighted differently. Yeah, they're oh, still very the, much, very the, much. They're still going to put the majority of the value of the weighting on what you have already done, what you have proven yeah. in an acquisition. Yeah. Whereas in startup land, valuations are very much part one, the, the vision of the future, and what we would call just like kind of thin air secret sauce or to the financial spreadsheet mm-hmm. of, uh, of the investment pool. Mm-hmm. It has less to do with how much the business maybe is really worth because everybody believes that one day it'll be worth a hundred million dollars, a billion dollars and more to do with the percentages and the amount of money needed. Yeah. And so it's like more about the spreadsheet than it is about the future spreadsheet than yeah. it is about and I think, the previous spreadsheet. I think the way that investors think about it is they say, all right, well, I am a, we'll just say, I'm a series A investor. I like to write three to $5 million checks, but I don't really want to own hundred percent of a business because I want my management to still have skin in the game. And I want, you know, I want them to run it. Right. And there might be other investors. And so I'll say, okay, I want my three to $5 million to buy, we'll say 40% of a company or 30% of a company. Right. Well, that's the algebra that tells you how much the company has to be worth for my three million to be worth thirty or forty percent of it. So, and see, this is the part right here. Right this here. This is the this is the brilliant people don't realize the valuation of a startup is largely based on how much that startup was able to raise yep. and how much that uh, investor is willing to invest. Absolutely. In the percentage there. So when you're really early stage, you might sell. There's a there's an accelerator called Y Combinator, and they give you $100,000 for 7% of your company. Yeah. And that basically determines that valuation immediately. Right. And then you go on and you go to raise, you know, 
$2 million and that person says, I want 20% of your company. Mm -hmm. And that then determines your valuation. It's less about the valuation and more about the, how the numbers play out. It's not on fundamentals the same way that, for example, any kind of sort of fundamentals analysis of like a public company would be right. Right. Like it's, it's not at all. I mean, I, I've given seminars on valuation before and it's such a, it's a dark art. It is an art, but it's a very dark art. And it's partly because you're trying to ascribe asset value to completely intangible things, right? right? Like intellectual property, like the experience of a founder, like, you know, five years potential, Mm -hmm. right? And I mean, you're talking about thin air optimism. It's puffery, right? Mm -hmm. You have no clue. And that's why it was so funny to go to real estate where you have a lot of clues about what Anyway, and then acquisitions live kind of in the middle of there. But one thing that startups don't realize in that beginning stage, and you, you said you need to ask yourself if you really want to raise money. And the reason why is because 10 years later you want to sell that business and you have some investors on what's called a cap table. Uh That also determines whether or not you can even sell that business, whether or not your value at that point actually makes you walk away with any money at all because you're going to be paying those investors back first. Right. Right. And there's always a struggle over valuation because, you know, the entrepreneurs want to say, well, you know, how, how can you, how can you tell me my baby's ugly and it's not worth as much as I think it's worth. And I want to preserve my ownership. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to give away more than I have to. And the investors say, well, you know, but, but I need to make sure that my money works and I need to make sure that I, you know, even if you don't have a huge exit that I still make some money back. Right. Right. And so there's this, always there's this push pull. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is why when Bob Saunders says, you know, you can name the valuation. I just want control of all the other terms. I mean, I could, I could list a bunch of stuff that are going to be in your, that we would have to put in the glossary, right? Like right. you can talk about liquid liquidation preference and you can talk about magic springing warrants and you can talk, I mean, like there's all tons sorts of things. Yeah. Tons. But startups or people who are starting businesses, even small businesses need to understand that evaluation on the raise is so different than on evaluation on the sell for the exact same company. And so yeah. some of, some of people don't realize that even startups who raised money are going to sell on a multiple of their EBITDA unless they At are some point yeah. 1% that goes and sells themselves to Google and it still stays in the thin air or you IPO. There's a lot of them that land in the middle and they're selling on a multiple of their EBITDA and that multiple might be a lot higher. It might be, you know, seven, 15. Yeah. Seven I, mean, 15. I mean, I think we were, so, we, we, we tried to buy in at five X and try to sell out at like eight to 12 times EBITDA. Right. Right. And so there's that, that right there, we try to buy in at margin five, expansion is what we call it. Yeah. And then you try to sell at a higher multiple, but we're still working on EBITDA. And so if your business is not profitable, you do not have an EBITDA to sell on. Yeah. But I also think that selling off of EBITDA is much more possible in some of the sort of middle market land. I mean, when you're a startup, depending on when you sell and depending on what you do, people may buy you because your technology really fits with theirs. People may buy you, you know, because you have an audience that they really want to reach. You mm-hmm. know, people may buy you for all sorts of reasons that aren't strictly financial. Right. Once you start getting into more private equity land and more roll-up land, that is, I am trying to sort of construct a financial acquisition here, right? I might say I can, I can put these two companies together. I can, you know, that, that means I can reduce a lot of costs on the sort of administrative end and, you know, it'll all fall straight through to profit and boom, right? Mm-hmm. And I have heard that a shocking number of mergers actually don't ever get to the savings that they say that they will. 
you know, they, they work, right? right? But they don't quite get what, you know, you just, you can never quite get the there. motivation for a merger yeah. versus, you know, mergers yeah. and acquisitions. They can have different motivations, yeah. but a lot of startups might not even realize that when they go to sell, it yeah. might be on EBITDA. Well, I mean, it, and when I said at some point it's on EBITDA, so you might have a private equity firm that sort of says, okay, I, I see what you're doing. I get it. I know that your EBITDA is not there yet because you just spent, you know, however many millions building out this infrastructure that you need for your platform and for blah, 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 for whatever. But at some point you need to be able to figure out how you're going to be profitable unless you are some crazy AI startup that is going to sell to Google or something. Right. And, and it, that's just such a small percentage that most, really most founders and most small, most owners need to understand that they, their goal is profitability. Yeah. Their goal is being able to pay themselves and pay their employees and grow that business in a sustainable way that one day you can or cannot sell it. Like yeah. you, you can decide to keep it. And, and I think it gets hard in startup land because it, you can get a little lazy because you can always raise money to cover operating losses, right? Like you don't sort of, you don't have to really, un unless, unless there's not an investor that's like ready to hand you a check, you, you don't, you don't always have to sort of go it alone and figure out your own profitability. Cause you'll say, oh, I'll just raise money. Right. Right. And that makes the problem worse because now you've raised more money. You have to pay back sometime or, you know, make, make for someone. Right. Or you go to raise money and you can't, and then you shut down overnight. <laughs> or you go to raise money and guess what? You're not worth what you thought you were. Right. And you, you get what we call a down round valuation, which is all of a sudden, depending on what your investor said about their anti-dilution, blah, blah, blah. Go see the glossary for anti-dilution. You may not own as much of the company as you thought you did. Right. All of a sudden, which is terrible. So, so, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for talking through a lot of different parts of investing and equity and how startups and acquisitions and real estate kind of all work together as a part of a portfolio and as a part of like the asset world that the capital world, I mean, it's complicated, but it's worth knowing when you want to really start to grow your wealth. It's worth learning these terms. It's worth learning all of this. And it, it makes it so much easier to learn when we have mm -hmm. people who have lived it, who have, who have understood it from many different ways. So I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with oh, us. I'm always happy to come talk to a friend. Awesome. Thanks, Allie. This has been fun. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Renegade Ventures podcast. Join our Renegade email for business listings and more resources at renegade.biz. That's renegade.biz. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share our podcast so that more women can choose a different path to business ownership.